I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'm going to highlight some of the content from the December edition of the journal. The first papers I'd like to cover relate to the management of head injury. Over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a significant change in the management of head injury, from admission for observation to early imaging, usually by CT, with discharge if the CT examination was normal. The decision to image isn't, however, straightforward, particularly in mild cases where the risk-benefit and economic implications need to be considered. In this issue, Colvin and colleagues report a significant increase in attendances with concussion, doubled over the last 10 years, although the number of admissions have remained stable. This data is from multiple US centres where 60% underwent CT and almost 50% received medication or intravenous fluids. In terms of cost, the visit plus CT costs less than an admission without CT but for observation, although the CT rate is clearly very high with less than 1% showing significant abnormality. In a second paper in this same issue, Holmes and colleagues compare various different imaging rules. That's really using diagnostic algorithms and add in plus CT everyone and CT no one from a health economic benefit of the prevention of death or disease from secondary complications of head injury versus the cost of CT and the malignancy risk from the radiation dose given. The details in the paper the conclusion is that the chalice rule has the best overall cost benefit. That's a rule which in essence uses decision making to determine the need for CT rather than scanning all children. The authors suggest that admission of children with a normal CT is not an effective use of healthcare resources. These papers raise important issues which are discussed in the accompanying editorial including the best strategy for management in the context of increased attendances for emergency care, the potential for over and under use of imaging, the use of inpatient observation, and the risk, benefit and cost of whatever processes are adopted. The next paper that I'd like to cover relates to the effect of teenage motherhood on outcome at age five. We all know that children born to teenage mothers tend to do less well. And we all know that many potential factors are implicated, including perinatal morbidity, socio-economic inequality, maternal health and parenting ability, all of which have been shown to be independently associated with cognitive development. In this issue, Marinis and colleagues using data from the Millennium cohort study, that's more than 18,000 infants born between 2000 and 2001, examine the association between teenage motherhood and cognitive development at five years using the British Ability Scales. 5% of the total were born to mothers aged 18 years and under. Children of teenage mothers had significantly lower cognitive scores compared with children of mothers aged 25 to 34, 
This was significant in terms of verbal ability score, non-verbal ability score and spatial ability and equivalent to an average delay of 11, 7 and 4 months respectively. This data does require correction and after correction for perinatal and sociodemographic factors the effects were attenuated although a significant difference persisted in verbal ability scores relating to an average delay of five months. The next paper I'd like to cover relates to collecting data on admissions. So this paper is about length of stay. Length of stay is often used as a marker of performance and increasingly used as a benchmark for efficiency. It is, however, affected significantly by admission rates in that units who admit more patients are likely to have a shorter length of stay. In this issue, Sharnay's colleagues compare the length of stay for infants with bronchiolitis across 17 units in eastern England during the winter months 2009-2012 and assess the impact of admission rates on length of stay. So overall, the admission rate was 3.3%, but with a wide range of 1.5 to 5.7%, with a length of stay ranging from 1.2 to 3.5 days. If bed days are factored in, and the range of that was wider, 34.5 to 122.3 per thousand, then corrected length of stay factoring in admission rates showed high disconcordance when compared with average length of stay. It's worth looking at this article and it's worth considering this article when these issues are discussed within your organisation. The implication of it is that length of stay should only be considered in conjunction with admission rates if it's going to be used as a marker of performance. The next paper that I've chosen relates to measuring healthcare by quality standards. So in February 2013, NICE published quality standards for the management of asthma in children, young people and adults. These are to be welcomed and present us with real opportunities to improve asthma care through auditing, benchmarking and service improvement. The quality standards are listed in the article. They're challenging but set reasonable and evidence-based goals for services to aspire to and offer us insight into how we can change expectations, impact on quality and thereby improve outcome. Quality standards for asthma should be seen in the context of it being the commonest chronic medical condition and the commonest reason for an acute medical admission. There are 1.1 million children in the UK who receive treatment and the annual healthcare cost for asthma management approaches a billion pounds. In the context of this information, it seems reasonable to aspire to children presenting to a healthcare professional with a severe or life-threatening acute exacerbation of asthma receiving oral or intravenous corticosteroids within an hour of presentation. That's standard eight. 
and for those children to have a structured review by a member of a specialist respiratory team before discharge. That's standard nine. So it's likely that introduction of these standards into your unit will impact on the quality of care you deliver to your patients. The final article that I'd like to highlight this month relates to autoimmune liver disease. This is an article written by experts who've worked in this field for more than 30 years. Autoimmune liver diseases in childhood include autoimmune hepatitis and autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis. Their rare disorders, characterized histologically by interface hepatitis, biochemically by raised serum transaminases, and serologically by autoantibodies and increased levels of immunoglobulin G. Autoimmune hepatitis is particularly aggressive in childhood and progresses rapidly unless immunosuppressive treatment is started promptly. With prompt treatment, 80% achieve remission and long-term survival. The prognosis of autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis is less good, with a less good response to immunosuppression and a high requirement for liver transplantation long-term. The review by Mil Vagani and colleagues from King's College Hospital discussed the etiology, clinical features, diagnosis and management of these disorders in an authoritative and evidence-based review based on their own experience working in this field over many years. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I refer you to the journal website for the full papers. Thanks for listening.